Good morning. <clears throat> it's good to see you. Um, if I have not had a chance to meet you yet, I'm Alan, Alan Pittman. I have the pleasure of being uh, the senior pastor here as well as one of the elders. If you did come in this morning and you met me, you probably didn't see my normal self. I'm normally a little bit louder um, and bouncing around. I've been trying to conserve my voice. Uh, when you came in, you also may have seen that there might have been a shirt or two or 73 that looked like mine. And you thought maybe this is interesting. Why have they done this? Some of you that are guests are going, I hope I haven't walked into a cult. You haven't. Others of you walked in and said, what's this deal about? Now you're hearing my voice and you know why. At any given moment, I'm able to call on one of my clones. They can come up here and finish the sermon for me. Um, the justices, where are the justices? Okay, Ashley's working somewhere. Okay, so uh, Jacob was really supposed to be wearing one because he does have experience preaching and I was supposed to hand off to him and he's not wearing his shirt today, so way to go. All right. <clears throat> um, in all seriousness, uh, the reason my voice sounds the way that it does is because I had a fun uh, weekend as I was one of the coaches for our Aggieland Homeschool Association at our state track meet. And if you want to know why I yelled and had a good time, go to my Facebook page, watch one of the running videos of my son, and you will see why I was shouting like I was. You know, the reality is this. We serve a great God. And we should worship him wherever we go. And it was a neat experience as we were a, a gathering of homeschool associations for this track meet and, and over the PA as well as at our um, school's kind of campsite. We prayed over the weekend and that we prayed for safety and for fun and that we would glorify God through our uh, running. I say our, I didn't run, but through our running and um, the reality is it's a reminder to us that wherever we go, whether the sun is shining or whether the sun's not shining, whether life is going like it should or whether it's not. For instance, I have about 35 texts on my phone right now from my family as we remember that two years ago today that my dad passed away. So regardless of where you are, regardless of what circumstance of life you're going through, we are called to glorify God. And so that's why as a church family, we, we, we state that we exist to be a disciple, make disciples, be the church to the glory of God. And so last week, we, we, we're as a church family, we are walking through the book of Acts. And hopefully you picked up a worship guide. On the back side of the worship guide is a place to take notes. At the bottom, you'll see where we'll be preaching next week, which is from Acts chapter 5, verse 12. But today we'll be in Acts 5, 1 through 11. If you've got a Bible with you, I would encourage you to open that up. If you don't have a Bible with you, I encourage you to grab a Bible that should be near you, in a chair, under you, or beside you. If you don't own a Bible and you'd like to take that one home with you, that is our gift to you. I started by talking about how, why we exist as a church. I, I started by saying that we're studying the book of Acts, and we're walking through seeing how the early church, in, in, in um, just the proximity of Jesus' uh, death, burial, and resurrection, as the church began, how it glorified God through its activities and through its unity and community. And last week, if you were here, you, you'll remember that we walked through the very ending of chapter 4, and we see at the end of chapter 4 a beautiful picture of what a great church church looks like. And one of the aspects at the end of chapter 4 was it said there was not a needy person among them because they as a church family 
were giving generously of their finances and of their wealth and of their possessions and their material possessions. I challenged us as a church family, and I want to do it again this morning, <clears throat> that we would live out the challenges of being that kind of church, that we as individuals would see the need to give regularly and generously to the ministry of the work of Jesus Christ through this local body. In fact, if you're a church member, that's one of the commitments you made, or one of the agreements when you join the church, that you would give regularly and generously. Last week, we also talked about the principle of the tithe, that, that in the New Testament, we see the principle that we're to continue to tithe, which is giving a 10% of our income. And I wanted to bring a little clarity. Last week, I kind of said, hey, if you're not tithing and you don't think you can get there, at least start incrementally. And I stand by those words. However, there may be some of us that use the excuse of incrementally getting there, and we have the margin that God says, start tithing, and you need to respond immediately. Either way, I believe that God is calling all of us that are his followers to give on a regular, generous, consistent, sacrificial kind of way to our local church body. And so if Living Hope is your church body, do that. If you've got another church body, do that wherever you're a member. But we are called to live generously. We're also called to give above and beyond the tithe at times, whenever we see a need arise. And so I wanted to draw your attention to a need that has arisen, and it's to fund our, partially fund our missionaries that will be going uh, from our church family to serve this summer in Czech Republic. We have six of our church members that will go for approximately a week or a little bit longer, and they will serve by, by teaching at an English camp and, and work alongside of the missionaries there as they begin to prepare to plant a church in that community. And we as a church family would like to raise an additional $4,000 to go towards their costs while they are there. They'll pay for their airfare and some other incidentals, but we would like to raise $4,000 to go towards those six individuals' efforts to help with lodging and food and transportation on the ground. And so I would ask you, would you consider to give above and beyond your tithe towards that? You can do that online. There's a way to check box, hey, check Republic, or you can put it on your offering envelope. But either way, let us be a church family that generously supports the work of the ministry. All right, at the end of chapter four, <clears throat> we see a character introduced, and his name is Barnabas. And you'll see at the very last verse of chapter 4 that Barnabas sold a field. He gave all that he had, all the proceeds, and brought it to the apostles' feet and laid it there for them to distribute wherever there was need. And that picks us up in chapter 5. Chapter 5 is not uh, a new starting point. Rather, chapter 5 is a continuation of what we see at the end of chapter 4. Here's what it says. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. But... So the word that starts the whole thing is but, so it obviously ties into the previous section. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter, one of the apostles, said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. 
When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed his last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. So, this text I've never preached. I don't even know if I remember ever hearing this text preached. In fact, when I was studying in my commentaries, they were sharing that they had looked at volumes and volumes of, I believe it was C.H. Spurgeon's sermons, and they couldn't find him ever having preached that. That doesn't mean he didn't, but it's just not a go-to passage in Scripture. Because I know what you're thinking. All right, Alan's about to pass the plates. And if we don't give like we should, then a bolt of lightning is going to strike us down. That's not what we're going for this morning. But here's the joy of being able to preach through the book of Acts. I wouldn't necessarily have jumped at this passage, but whenever you walk your way through a book of the Bible and you come to it, then you just preach it. So you get the joy of hearing this text preached. Here we see in chapter 5 a complete contrasting picture of what we saw at the end of chapter 4. At the end of chapter 4, we see that a church is unified. They are supporting the work of the ministry, and they are in unity as they are doing so. We read a genuine example of a man who is doing that, and his name is Barnabas. But, as the first word of chapter 5 says, here is a contrasting example. It's an example for us to avoid. Just like the end of chapter 4 is a, an example to, to, to live out, this is an example of one not to live out. It's a reminder to us that while we see the amazing things that God does in the early church, we should never idolize her because she is a church just like us and she has sin just like us and therefore we need to learn the message that God has for us and then apply it to our lives as individuals as well as the church family. And so that's what we're going to strive to do today. So in this text, we, we need to see first and foremost what's going on. Whenever they sell the land and they don't give 100% of it, they are struck down dead. And so you're, you may be asking, what is the deal here? You may be thinking, oh, I know what it is. Like, they were supposed to. They were commanded to sell everything. And because they didn't give all of the money, then they're struck down dead. We, we don't have a, a biblical reason that would say that. And what I mean by that is there's no indication that 100% of the people that were a member of that church were supposed to have done this very thing. 
Rather, whenever they sold the property, we find out from Peter's own words in verse 4 that they had the liberty to follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit and therefore either give 100% of the proceeds or a portion of the proceeds. So it's not that they didn't give 100%, it's the fact that they lie about what's going on. And we've got to see that's what's happening. In verse 4, the word disposal. When, when Peter says to Ananias, when it was your property, wasn't it your own? And then after you sold it, was it not at your disposal? The word disposal here doesn't mean just flush it down the drain. Rather, disposal means authority. That he has the permission to spend it, to use it. Now, I want to be careful here. What Peter is not saying is, Ananias, you could have done anything you wanted with that money. Like, you could just spend it and blow it on yourself, get a brand new Lamborghini. You could do whatever you want to do with it. But what he is saying is that under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, it is at your disposal to follow his leadership. And if he's not leading you to give 100%, that's okay. But be truthful and honest and obey the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life. So, I think this is what took place. I believe that because the example of Barnabas is there, they witnessed what happened with Barnabas. And I believe that whether they intended to give 100% or not, somewhere along the way, they said, man, it's cool that Barnabas kind of got a, a pat on the back. Like, we want to be Barnabas. He's a good, solid guy. And so instead of being truthful about it, they act as if they did the same thing that Barnabas had done. And then they pay the price for having done so. But here's the deal. As I read this text, I ask a few questions. As you read this text, maybe you ask a few questions as well. Whenever we read the Word of God, we know it's 100% true. We know it has no error. We know it's infallible. It's inerrant. But when we read the text, we should walk away and sometimes say, I, I don't understand this piece. This is confusing to me. It doesn't make sense. Like, why would God do this? So here's a couple of questions that I ask myself. First of all, why did God kill Ananias and Sapphira? I mean, they gave a portion of their money to the church. I anticipate it probably was a very large portion. I doubt that they sold it for $100,000 and walked in with a penny. I anticipate that they gave a pretty good chunk of money. And so if they gave a pretty good chunk of money, if they did, we don't know what they gave, but if they did, why would God choose to kill them? Why would he choose to do it right there, right then, like that? If we're being honest as humans, it seems that God's reaction was a bit over-exaggerated. That God seems to be a little bit overzealous in the moment. Like, I would never recommend what I'm about to say, but there may be an internal feeling like, chill down, God, chill down, you're okay. I wouldn't recommend that. But we may be thinking, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. Why did he kill them? The second question that I ask is, why didn't Peter at least give them a chance to explain, explain themselves. Why did he not do that? Especially Sapphira. Like, why didn't he give her a chance to explain why they did what they did? Now, hear me say this. Peter did not kill them. Peter did not tell God to kill them. Rather, Peter in the moment felt the leadership of the Holy Spirit and he knew what God had chosen to do. But why did Peter not give them a moment to explain themselves? As soon as they misrepresented the price. 
we see that Peter pronounces their death. So maybe this morning as you wrestle with this text, maybe those are a couple of questions you have. And so as we walk through this together, we're going to try to answer these questions and see what God's word has to say to us. I think the reason we struggle with these questions is because all too often when we look to God's word, we start at the wrong place. When we read God's word, we begin to try to insert ourselves in the story. Like we're pumped up about David and Goliath and David slew the giant. And by golly, that means that I'm going to step out and God's going to give me the power to slay my giants. That's not what that story is about. You see, the starting point of scripture should never be us. The starting point in scripture must always be God and his character. In fact, in all things of life, that should be the starting point. Whenever we make it about ourselves, collectively or individually, that's where we get in trouble. And so whenever I say, God, it doesn't make sense to me, why did you kill them in that moment? I think the reason we, we have that question is because we're not starting where we should. If we start at God and his character, it begins to make more sense to us. So if you've got your sermon notes, the first point says this, God is holy. God is holy. We have to start here with that fact, with that truth, so that we can begin to understand what takes place in Acts chapter 5. So what does it mean to say that God is holy? That means that he's perfect. That means he's set apart. That means he's other than. That means he's separate from. It means he's unstained by sin and evil. That means that he is perfectly good at all times. This truth must impact everything else we read in this text. So I encourage you, as we walk through this text, start with the basic premise that is true. God is holy. God is holy. Peter, look at verse 5, 4, sorry, verse 4. Look at verse 4. Peter, when he's speaking to Ananias, says, You have not lied to man, but to God. And then look down in verse 9, when he's talking to Sapphira. And here's what he says. How is it that you've agreed together to test the Spirit? So Peter, to both of those individuals, to the husband and the wife, he says, first and foremost, you've lied to God. And then he says, you've tested the Spirit. And what we see here is that they have overlooked the fact that God is holy. Either they're unaware of it, which is doubtful, whether, or, or they're, they're unconcerned with it, or they're not wanting to be bothered by it, or they're not seeing how God's holiness applies to their daily lives. Their sin, we see here, is a sin of fraud. They are an absolute fraud in this moment. Look at... Um, verse 1, or actually verse uh, 2. It says, with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. When I read that in the English, here's what I think. I see, okay, that means that I got um, some money for selling something. So I'll, I'll pull out some money here. I got $15, okay? 
So I sold something to somebody and they gave me $15. So to keep back a portion to myself just means I'm going to pocket $10, $5 and I'll give this 10 And that's kind of what it means. It's just I'm keeping a portion. The word here means something much bigger than keeping a portion to themselves. The word keeping back to themselves in the Greek means embezzlement. It means to misappropriate funds. It's not simply a choice. I'm going to keep a portion of it to myself. It's bald-faced, ultimate lying to God and embezzling money. So their sin is that they are frauds in this moment. They commit fraudulent activity. But the biggest fraud they commit is not keeping back a portion. The biggest fraud that they commit is not embezzlement. The biggest fraud is they are lying to a holy God about who they are. What they are saying is, God, we are holy. We are following you. We are doing the right thing. We are righteous. We are on the up and up. We are holy, or at least they appeared to be when they were other than that. They lied to the others in their church family. They looked at God in the face, and they lied about who they were. I want us to consider how serious that is. We need to see that, that ultimately they are utterly disrespecting God. They somehow thought that they could lie to the Holy Spirit and get away with it. What I want us to hear this morning is this. If we are spiritual frauds, if we are living in spiritual deceit towards others and towards God, God sees it. God is holy. It's interesting, Lenny is my cheerleader oftentimes. She prayed for my voice beforehand. She says amen in almost every service. And I guarantee you this, it is hard to say amen to this sermon. Not because it's my words, but because it's God's words. And to say that we as humans all too often are spiritual frauds, ain't nobody want to say amen to that. But the reality is we are. So I encourage you, I invite you in, whether you are saying amen with your words or not, which is quite helpful to me, or whether you're saying amen internally, hear the words of the Lord. He is holy and he cannot put up with spiritual deceit and spiritual fraud. So, don't run past their sin. They lie to God, and this is a huge deal. So God's reaction to their sin is a bit more understandable when we comprehend his holiness. To come in, here's the deal. If you go to a courtroom in the United States of America, it is my hope and my prayer that whether you are guilty of the thing or not, that you will be honest and transparent and accountable when you stand before that judge. That judge, whether it be a woman or a man, has zero authority compared to the holy God that we serve. And so how even more offensive for us to step into the throne room of God and outright lie about who we are. But that's what Ananias and Sapphira has done. So in that moment, God strikes them dead. All too often, you and I, we attempt to lie to God. Sometimes we do it consciously, intentionally, 
And other times we just kind of do the white lie thing, kind of unconsciously, like kind of ignoring the edges, if you will. Let's be careful because God is holy. Let's look at some of God's holiness that we see and the respect for it in verses 5 and 11. In verses 5 and 11, after Ananias is struck down dead, we see in 5 that those who saw it, those who heard it, they were, um, they had great fear. Great fear came upon all of them. Then look down in verse 11. After she is killed and buried, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. No doubt, some were fearful, as in scared. But the word fear here actually means respect, reverence, awe. And in this moment, the people of God said, there's something to this. That God is worthy of our reverence and, uh, and, and our respect. It's an acknowledgement that God is who he says he is. So as we kind of finish this baseline of understanding that God is holy, I've got a couple of application questions to ask you. When is the last time that you stopped and acknowledged that God is holy and you are not? You're like, Alan, I came to church this morning. We were going to sing the song, Holy, 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 and I acknowledge it. No, I'm saying when is the last time you, to your heart level, acknowledged, God, you are holy. You are sovereign. You are in charge. You have authority in my life. All too often we live as if we call the shots. That's offensive to God. Let us understand that God is holy. Second application question is, when is the last time that you had a holy fear of the Lord? Had a chance to catch up with a friend this week, and he told me that there was an occasion in his life in the not-too-distant past when God spoke to him and he acknowledged and understood the fear of the Lord where the Holy Spirit said, turn right now or you won't be able to handle the consequences. I'm not trying to scare anybody. I'm simply saying, are we living our lives in such a way that the fear of the Lord is a reality in our lives? It's not how church is supposed to be, right? How church is supposed to feel good. We're supposed to get 10 top ways to live a better life. No, that's not how church is supposed to be. Church is supposed to acknowledge who God is and live accordingly. God is holy. When is the last time that you had a healthy, holy fear of the Lord? And then along those lines, are you quick to sing that God is holy, but slow to live like you actually believe it? Are you quick to sing that God is holy, and yet very, uh, at the same time, you don't live like you actually believe it. So the first step, seeing that God is holy. The second one is this, because he is holy, his church is to be holy. We see a pretty good example of that at the end of verse chapter four. At the end of chapter four, we looked at it last week. You can go back on the website and listen to the sermon if you'd like to. But in that message, we saw that that church family was living in community. They were proclaiming the gospel. They were living self-sacrificially. They were living in the holiness of the Lord. And then this section comes up, and in verse one, the word but jumps in. Right in the middle of a church seeking to live in a holy fashion, there's a contrast to the end of chapter four. And so we see in this that Satan begins to attack the church. 
Satan's motif is to try to attack us. And one way that he sometimes attacks us is internally, among our own church members, among those who are part of the church family, and that's what he does in this moment. Satan attacks the church, and some of its members, Ananias and Sapphira, absolutely fail to live holy lives. You're like, Alan, that seems like you're being a little tough on them. Remember what God did to them. So that's not, I don't think, over the top. But look at verse 3. In verse 3, here's what Peter says. Peter's talking to Ananias, and he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? If Satan has filled Ananias' heart, then it is very clear that he's not living a holy life. Scripture over and over again, especially here in the book of Acts, it encourages us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And instead of being filled with the Holy Spirit, Ananias and Sapphira were filled by Satan. It's impossible for us to live holy lives if we're not filled with the Spirit. So my question is, are you seeking as an individual to live a holy life? And if you are, the only way that's even feasible is if you're allowing the Holy Spirit to fill you in such a way that you're responsive to him. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit abides within you. That's, that, that goes without saying. But all too often as followers of Jesus, we are not walking in that truth, in that reality. And instead, if we're not careful, we could be walking in the flesh. I read one of the commentaries this week, and in the commentary, they were quoting another pastor, and the pastor said this, if this text was lived out on a regular basis, and God acted the way he did in this occasion all the time, then every church staff would have to have three or four morticians on staff, and death would be a regular event and occurrence. And on one side, we chuckle about it, but the reality is we need to be grateful that God doesn't always act this way, and yet we cannot walk away and go, good thing. No, because sin is just as serious now as it was back then, even if God doesn't react in the exact same way. Now, stay with me. You may have stumbled over the words I just said. I'm going to get to what I mean by he doesn't always act in the exact same way. Stay with me. I don't mean what it might have sounded like. So... Let's look at 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. Peter implores us to live holy lives based on the fact that God is holy. So it puts these first two points together. Here's what it says, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he, God, who called you is holy, you also be uh, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So the truth of the matter is this. The starting point is the holiness of God. And because of the holiness of God, he calls us to be set apart and to live differently and pursue God in such a way that we are living holy lives as well. So whenever I say his church is to be holy, I want you to see that I mean it in two different ways. One is the church is to be made up of holy individuals. So God is calling you as a follower of Jesus to live a holy life. At the same time, he's calling us collectively as a church family to live a holy life. 
So part of the reason why at our church we have elders, we have four elders here, two are on staff and two are uh, lay elders. And the reason, part of the reason we have our elders is to help us hold ourselves accountable to strive towards holiness and, and, and follow God as a church family. You see how individuals live their lives impacts the church community. And how the church community lives its life impacts individuals as well. And part of the reason why I said that the church is called to live a holy life and not just we as individuals is because the only way that we as individuals will really live a holy life is if we're doing it in community. You see, the major way to avoid spiritual deceit is to live in accountable community. Here at our church family, the doors are always open to everyone to come in and be a part of a Sunday morning service and other activities. However, we believe that God calls individuals to commit themselves to a local body, and so therefore we have what we call membership. So if you've never gone to the membership class, you may think you're a member of the church, but you're not. You're, you're an attender. And what we like to see is everyone that feels like God's called them to Living Hope to go through a membership class and officially commit and agree to be a faithful follower of Jesus and a faithful church member. And this past week, I taught a membership class. And in our membership book, here's one of the things that it says. At Living Hope, we seek to live in authentic and accountable family community. It's obvious that Ananias and Sapphira did everything they could to avoid authentic, accountable community. And what I'm, as your pastor and as your friend, calling you and I to do as followers of Jesus, we must strive to live in a community atmosphere that is accountable and authentic and transparent with each other. The moment we remove authenticity and transparency is the moment that we begin to walk in spiritual deceit, just like Ananias and Sapphira did. So I encourage you, I implore you to be a part of authentic community. Don't be like Ananias and Sapphira. So to give you some application questions here is, I want to ask you, are you in accountable relationships with others? Or do you simply go to church with other people, you say hello to each other, you pray for each other, but you're not really real and transparent with each other? Are you in accountable relationships? Alongside of that, do, you, do others truly know you? Or are you successfully at least in your mind, successfully, deceiving others. I encourage you to be a part of a community that holds each other accountable. Here at our church, we have that offered in a few different ways. In a hope group. A hope group, a small group that meets throughout the course of the week is an excellent way for you to be accountable with one another. Just imagine, if you will, if I picked up a chair and I set it up on stage, and I said, hey, this morning, guys, we're just going to take time, and each one of us will come up individually, and we're going to share our, our sin from this past week. So we're going to start on the front row, and we'll work our way around. You're real quickly going, um, I think i got to go. But, amen. <laughs> but when we get in a hope group, where there's 10 or 12 or 15 or 8 other adults in the room, 
we're more prone, we're more likely to open ourselves up and share what's going on in our lives. So this is amazing. It's wonderful to come and worship on Sunday mornings. But to be in an accountable, authentic community means you need to be in a smaller setting to be able to experience that. So that's why we say that every member of our church needs to be in a hope group. Also, you can experience that to a degree if you're a part of a ministry team. Sometimes our greeters are down here. They're not always wearing the same color shirts like they did today. And they're down here greeting others, and as they do, they're able to share with one another. They're able to experience life together. In our church, we also have these things called D groups, where three to four to five people are in a, in a group together and studying God's word, and we're holding each other accountable. We have, we have Bible study classes that seek to do that. Get yourself in a place where you can be in an accountable, authentic community. Here's the third thing I want you to see on the notes. Because God is holy, because his people are called to live holy lives, we must see that he judges. God judges all unrighteousness. Every time. This is the part that I said, hang on, because I'll explain what I mean when I say that God doesn't always do it the same way. So I want you to hear it here. In this scenario, in Acts chapter 5, God judges unrighteousness instantaneously, on the spot, in the moment, clearly and visibly for all to see. I'm not going to read these verses again, but look at verse 5 and then verse 10. And you'll see that the, the judgment of God is instantaneous. In verse 5, whenever Peter speaks the words to Ananias, we see that as soon as Ananias hears the words, he falls down dead. And then when you look down at verse 10, whenever you see where the same thing happens with Sapphira, it says that she immediately fell down dead. So my question is, why did God do it this way? Why did he not give them another shot? Why kill them on the spot? The easy church answer, which is the true answer that doesn't give us all we feel like we're due to understand, is this. God is holy. God expects us to live holy lives. And when we don't, he will judge it. He has authority to do so, and he will do it 100% of the time. And he will judge it ultimately, finally, at the end of time, on the last day. And sometimes he does it exactly like this, where he judges it in the moment, and we experience it, and others see it as well. Anything else that begins to try to answer the question, why did he do it on the spot, borders on speculation. Because the text doesn't tell us. But here's some food for thought. This is the beginning of the church, right? And God knew that it was a critical time period in the life of the early church. And he chooses to do it dramatically to warn them of the seriousness of sin. Also because the church is starting and the church has unity. And now unity is beginning to break because of spiritual deceit. God says, I've got to shore this back up, catch their attention, and correct it immediately so that they can see that unity is disrupted by the sin of her people, the church's people. And no doubt we see here that he emphasizes the seriousness of hypocrisy. 
So God chooses to judge it in the moment. But the reality is this, that God judges ultimately all sin. And we must never forget that. Scripture is clear all throughout, from beginning to end, that God created us in his image to bring him glory and to live our lives for them. For him, for him, sorry. We are to live our lives for him. However, because of the original sin of Adam and because of our own choice along the way, 100% of us will go against God's plan and we will look in the eyes of a holy God and say, no, thank you, I've got this, I'm going to do it my way. If it feels good, do it. And God's word says this, that because of our sins, the wages of our sin is death. The wages of our sin is death. In Acts chapter 5, we literally see death come because of sin. At the same time, Ultimately, the phrase that the wages of sin is death is less about physical death, although that's true, and it's more about a spiritual death of separation from a holy God because God is holy and it can have nothing to do with sin. I have no business being with God whatsoever. And so my sin separates me always for all eternity from a holy, perfect God. And if I live my life, however long or short it may be, and never confess my sins to that holy God, then the Bible is clear that I'll live eternally in a horrible place called hell that's separated from God for all eternity. And so God judges sin. But there's good news. It doesn't stop there. The wages of sin is death, but the rest of the verse in Romans 6.23 says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Maybe I need to say that again because this is such a sobering passage to say that our sins deserve death. The reality is that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's something to shout about. So here's the deal. God is holy he expects us to live holy lives. When we don't, not if we don't, when we don't, he will judge our sins. But the good news is this, the last point on the sermon notes is our response should be, must be repentance. Because the way that we experience the free gift of God of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord is by trusting in him for salvation, repenting of our sins, seeing that our sin is offensive to God, and trusting that the death, burial, and resurrection, as well as the ministry of Jesus, allows us the opportunity to be forgiven of our sins. So our response to our sin must be, should be, please is repenting of our sins. Some of you this morning, listening to my voice, 
You have never trusted in Jesus for salvation. You've never accepted his free gift. You've never acknowledged your sin before a holy God. You this morning need to get on your knees, at least figuratively, if not literally, and say, God, I am sorry for my sin. I repent of my sin. I trust that Jesus is the way for salvation. I know that he died in my place for me when he died on the cross and that he was raised to new life for my salvation. Some of you this morning, you've been playing church for too long. You think Ananias and Sapphira's punishment was stiff and bad? Jesus says that the day is coming when some will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and that and this? And he'll say, depart from me, for I never knew you. There are some in this room this morning. There are some watching online. You've been playing the church thing. You don't know Jesus personally. You've not experienced his salvation. And today is the day to repent of your sins and to be converted and to receive salvation, to begin the process of eternal life. God did not say that the free gift of of grace brings us wonderful church attendance and membership and all the perks therein. No, he says that the free gift of God is eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. And today is the day that some of us, some of you need to repent of your sin and trust in Jesus for salvation today. This is not to scare you. This is not saying, oh, I better do it so I don't get struck down dead. No, don't respond because of that. Respond because of God's holiness. So some of us, need to repent for the first time. This isn't, oh God, I'm sorry that I got my hand caught in the cookie jar. This is, I realize this is sin. I repent and I turn from it by your Holy Spirit as you lead me to live my life. There's others of us in this room. You're truly a follower of Jesus, but you're not following him very closely. Like if I somehow had video of your life or your thought life and we played it on the screen, you and I would be freaked out. <laughs> Amen. I'm not saying that everybody in our life should know all the nitty gritty of our lives. But if there is not somebody that's a follower of Jesus in your life, that you could share everything, then that means you're committing the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. I was talking to one of my kids this week, last week or two. We were talking about trust. And they said, hey, I can't trust everybody because I can't tell them everything that's going on in my life. And I said, absolutely. Like, we shouldn't trust everybody with all our business. But God has called us to be in community and there must be somebody in our lives that we can lay it out like it really is. So if you freaked out internally when I said I might want to play a video of your your life, please consider what areas of sin in your life do you need to repent of this morning? proper response to our sin is repentance. You see, we need to repent of our sins for salvation, justification, conversion, 
but we also need to repent of our sins for ongoing sanctification, becoming more and more and more like Jesus. You see, whenever we take God's holiness seriously, then we'll take our sin seriously. But as long as I think God is just kind of the good guy in the sky, as long as I think God's kind of like Santa Claus in the clouds, as long as I think God's kind of like just happy with me, as long as I live a good, moral, upright life and I vote for the proper people, just as long as I smile when people walk in the door, just as long as I don't like freak out when my wife buys a shirt like 73 other dudes and, and we all wear, show up to church on that morning, as long as I'm not hateful towards her, then I'm okay. No, God is not calling us to be okay people. God's calling us to be holy people. And you and I cannot be holy unless we are pursuing Christ. We can't pursue Christ unless we repent of our sin. We can't repent of our sin typically unless we're in a community where we can speak of what's going on in our lives. I know what some of us are thinking, man, I'm just glad I'm not Ananias and Sapphira. As I prepared the message this week, I found a quote that just shook me. In fact, I texted it to Howard when I found it. It's, in a, it's, it's, it's a commentary. The pastor, his name is R. Kent, uh, sorry, uh, R. Kent Hughes, well-known guy. Here's what the pastor said. This is for me. When a preacher urges his people toward deeper devotion to God, implying that his life is an example when in actuality he knows it's not. He is repeating Ananias' sin. Do you know how that hit me this week? I stand up here and I say, hey guys, live a holy life. Hey guys, honor God in all that you do. Hey guys, bring glory to God in everything you do. Am I speaking out of both sides of my mouth? Don't get me wrong, I'm not like a serial killer. But I'm prone to spiritual deceit as well. I don't think it's intentional. You see, I don't want to pull a chair up here either. I don't want to sit down on a chair and say, Hi, my name's Alan and I'm a sinner. Let me tell you about this past week. Don't walk out of here thinking, oh my goodness, our pastor's in moral failure. I'm not. But guys, do I take the holiness of God seriously? Do I take the offensiveness of my sin seriously? Do I acknowledge that at times I walk in spiritual deceit, trying to deceive myself, trying to deceive you, trying to deceive the people in my life, or do I live in authentic, transparent, full of integrity? Guys, it's time for us to stop playing church. Be the church. Be a disciple. Make disciples. Be the church of the glory of God. I'm not saying live perfectly. 
Because if you're looking for a perfect church, don't join it because then it becomes imperfect. You see the joke there? My wife tells me if I have to like ask you about it, it wasn't funny. <laughs> None of us will live perfect lives, but we are called to live holy lives. We are called to pursue the Lord. We are called to see his holiness and live accordingly. We are called to see the offensiveness of our sin and repent of that sin. I implore you, don't repeat Ananias and Sapphira's sin by trying to make others think that you're more spiritual that you, than you are. And in light of God's holiness, evaluate your own life this morning. See if there's any sin that you need to repent of. Because guys, this truly is a matter of life and death. If you head down a road of spiritual deceit, it will lead you to a place you don't want to go. You heard me say a moment ago, your pastor is not in the midst of moral failure. But if I'm not careful, because I'm a human, I can deceive myself into thinking that it's impossible for me to have a moral failure. And I can put it on cruise control and be sucked into the lies of Satan. And those same words are just as true of you as they are of me. So evaluate your own life. Here's a couple questions to ask. Do I practice spiritual deceit? Do I try outwardly or subtly to make myself appear to be more committed to Christ than I really am? I don't know what spiritual deceit you may be committing, but here are a few that are possibilities. We'll start with the first one. The deceit that took place here, Ananias and Sapphira were acting more generous than they really were. Perhaps you walked in this morning and you're thinking, I'm generous with my giving to the church. My question is, are you really generous, generously giving to the work of the ministry of the church or is God saying, hey, be real? Some of us may be practicing spiritual deceit in that we hold back from sharing honestly with our hope group. I can't tell you how joyful it is to be in a hope group when we just get past, when we get past just reciting the church answers to one another. And someone speaks and says, I'm struggling with this. And we speak the gospel to each other. Here's another way we could practice spiritual deceit. Acting one way at church and entirely different at home. What about any secret addiction? This next statement is more for the guys, although I know it applies to ladies as well. If all of us were blind right now and we knew no one could see, how many hands would go up when I said, do you have a secret addiction such as pornography? Do you have a secret addiction such as the abuse of alcohol? 
Do you have a secret addiction such as the use of drugs? Another possible spiritual deceit is this, lack of integrity in your business dealings. Could be illegal or immoral behavior. The list could go on and on and on and on. I know this text is a bit of a downer, but I think we have to read We have to allow God's holiness and our sinfulness to really penetrate our heart so that we can experience the joy of repentance and restoration and redemption and authenticity and true community to see everything to the glory of God. We will never be the church that God is calling us to if we continue to live lives of spiritual deceit. And hear me say, I'm not judging living hope. These same words could be said at any other church this meeting this morning as well. You and I may think we're fooling everybody, and perhaps we are, but we aren't fooling God. And with the words of Peter, why are we lying to the Holy Spirit? Why are we testing the Holy Spirit? Here's what I want us to do this morning. As you consider your own life, lay the results before the Lord. You could do it figuratively or you could do it literally right here at the altar. You could put it on a connection card. You could do it with a conversation with me or one of our elders or somebody in your hope group. But here's the three things you need to do. Repent of your sin while at the same time relying upon God's grace. Did you hear that second part? Please don't miss it. Yes, repent of your sin, but rely on God's grace to help you. Get into community. Open yourselves up for true, authentic accountability. Let's do business with God. I'm going to lead us in prayer, and after we do, there'll be plates that are passed, and you can put in that an offering if you brought it, a connection card, commitment, whatever you're doing, it can be dropped there or you can ignore it, whatever. But hear what God is saying to you. God's calling you to salvation, say yes to him today. If God is calling you to repent of your sins, say yes to that. Come pray at this altar. Guys and gals, let me hear, let, let, uh, hear me say this. You may have something you want to repent of, you feel like you should come pray at the altar and you may think, but if I go forward, everybody's going to think that I'm that guy that's deeply involved in this or that or that I'm a moral uh, bankruptcy. Don't let that prevent you from coming and praying. Don't judge anyone. Respond as God leads you. Let me pray for us.